This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're having conversations about how to do good better and faithfully. Hello and welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we are learning how to do good better. And really grateful that you can join us today in this conversation with Anne Reitsema and Megan North. Anne is the CEO of MedAir, a really significant NGO that we will talk about. And Megan North was the country director for MedAir in Ukraine and Poland and just back in the last couple of weeks after a really intense year there. So Anne and Megan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So excited to talk with you today and thought we'd start with this really specific experience of working in Ukraine. Megan is also a, an alum of our program, the master's program we do here at Wheaton College. And so I'll start with you, Megan, and then think about your experience of going from here, being in a program, being there, and then your perspective, Megan, as a CEO and thinking of this big picture of how do you respond in a place like Ukraine. So Megan, tell us an impossible question, but you you left. What was it like when you first arrived? What stage a year ago was the war in and what was your job when you arrived in the country? Yes. Yeah, so I arrived in early June of last year. So the conflict had already been going on for a couple of months mm-hmm. and our response was still in that emergency phase of responding at the border in Poland to those that were fleeing and then reaching inside the country in the Western region at that point to respond to those that had been displaced inside the country. So it was still very much an emergency phase of kind of how do we do this and how does this response come together, building up and gathering staff and training, setting our policies in place, but most of all trying to figure out this response is so much different than the other contexts that we so often see. Different in what ways? Well, the basic needs are still the same. I mean, people need medical care and water and food and shelter. But the context is so different with the type of conflict that's going on that the danger can really reach all across the country. You can't just go to the West and be far away from the front line and be safe. And so what does that look like in our security policies and our care for communities? But also, how do we do programming differently? In other contexts, we run clinics in communities and we build that from scratch where people may be in South Sudan, for example, walking days to get to the nearest clinic and we provide that. But in Ukraine, that wasn't the need. That wasn't the case. But helping hospitals scale up because the community, the number of people that they were serving just doubled or tripled. And so the resources weren't in place. So how do we help them scale up? How do we help hospitals and clinics that have been looted or damaged rebuild and re-equip so that they can serve the community that they're in? Mm. But knowing that the skill skill and expertise or, or the institutions and structures have traditionally been in place, but they've been disrupted in some way. So trying to adjust our approach and think come at this differently, not just showing up and saying, oh, we know how we do this. We're setting up a clinic because that's what we always do. But taking the time to really meet with communities, meet with leaders and understand what their needs are and how we can partner with them to see them succeed. 
Thanks, Megan. And how you've done this kind of work of being a country director, you've done this work in the field for 20 years, now as CEO, what what kind of values, what are the guiding principles, scope of work and values you want to, you want to see implemented, even though you're stepping into a place that is a really different context than other places that you're working in. Every place you step into is a different context. Mm. It's a really good question because, as Megan says, in Ukraine, the needs are the same, basic needs. We're all human beings. Mm -hmm. But the ways of delivering what we do may look different. But the how is definitely the same. The heart attitude that we want to show, the coming alongside communities, really listening, as Megan was describing, mm -hmm. and understanding what's available, what's possible, what can... What capacity do they have? How do we harness that capacity? Working with the existing committees and the city structures where there are already ways of understanding what the needs are and where the most vulnerable are. So having an expedited approach to being able to reach the most vulnerable because of that collaboration, because of those relationships built. So the starting point, I think, of thinking about values for us as an organization is actually thinking about what kind of relationships do we want to have mm. We believe that our relationship with God influences all our other relationships. It influences our understanding of who we are as people. You know, we're made with value. And we want to show that dignity and respect to every single person that we come alongside. We want to have genuine compassion. And I saw this in the Ukraine program in the ways that the care was being provided in a loving, personalized way, and not just to try and achieve big numbers and achieve targets, but really seeing the person behind it. What's the difference? Give an example of it. How did you see that different? Like what's a way when it, that dignity and respect isn't being given and what's like a specific for an individual when it is being given? This is an experience that both Megan and I went through together when I was visiting the Ukraine program last year. We were traveling Back out of Ukraine, we'd been uh, Bucha and Boryanka, north of Kyiv, shortly after those communities had been horrendously impacted by the conflict. And we were standing on a platform waiting to get on a train to head back to Poland. And a train arrived from the front lines from Zaporozhye. And soldiers stepped off and were greeted by their families. And there was such intense emotion mm. amongst them at that moment as they had that experience of the relief of still being alive and having that reunion. Mm -hmm. Mothers stepped off with their children where they were carrying more luggage than they could possibly move with and just looked completely lost. Mm -hmm. And then some of those mothers and children got on the train with us to head out to become refugees at that moment. And I've, I've been in this work for a long time, but I've never actually been on the same mode of transport mm -hmm. with mothers and children as they are leaving everything behind and having that that heightened sense of anxiety and fatigue and fears and sense of vulnerability. So we got into Poland just before midnight. People were queuing at the border crossing with their passports and children were crying and tired and ornery. And then uh, the next morning I had the privilege of visiting our mother and child safe space within the train station that we were facilitating where we had Ukrainian mothers volunteering who had been through that experience themselves, who were receiving those mothers that, you know, just before midnight, giving them a place to sleep, setting an alarm, understanding from them which trains, helping them figure out what their next mode of transport would be, and then taking care of their kids, having a play corner, some snacks, some teddy bears, while they got a chance to really let go and relax and sleep and get the rest that they need so that they could continue their journey. And as those Ukrainian volunteer mothers described to me what they were doing and why they were doing it and the love and care with which they were mm. doing it, I thought to myself, man, this is compassion lived. It's seeing the individual. 
And I find often when we leave a program and we hand it over to the community or to another more development organization, the feedback we get is not about what we've done. They don't say, thank you for the clinic. Thank you for the water point. Thank you for the nutritional support for our mm-hmm. children. Most of the time, the feedback is really about how we've treated people. It's about the fact that we've seen them as individuals and we've grieved with them. We've celebrated with them. We've gotten to know them. We've taken the time to listen to them. And people say, you know, thank you that you saw us as real people, that you didn't just see us as a number. And that's not just the communities themselves. It's also other partners. I remember when we left Sudan years ago, we are now back in Sudan mm-hmm. as the as the crisis continues to unfold. But when we left in 2012, the NGO steering committee chair spoke and government officials spoke at our leaving celebration handover. And what they talked about was how they they knew what Medea's values were mm-hmm. and they named them one by one and that they had seen them lived by all of the leadership that they'd experienced over the years and by the team members that they'd encountered. And it was encouraging to us that they felt that that was important, that that piece of how we treat people is really where the rubber meets the road, that it is in relationships that the deeper impact happens. As a leader, how do you create that culture and value? Because there's pressure, there's stressful situations, there are demands or reports, there's meeting the numbers that you have to for the grants or whatever Mm. partners do and people, whether it's in the war zone or the local church food pantry, you know, I think we say, oh, they want to have values like this. But what have you found is key to helping a team, helping you volunteers, those Ukrainian women, staff like Megan to really live these values out. And there are so many other things Mm. that, that can personally and professionally make it hard to live those out sometimes. I think the starting point is really believing that that's what really matters. And years ago, when we were exiting Angola, one of our senior national staff, Martin Katongo, came and met with me and prayed with me. And he said, Anne, the clinics, the water points, they might not last. But the thing that's going to last forever is the heart change that we have achieved through the way that we have modeled relationships amongst each other. It's been 60 years of war here. Trust was completely broken in this community. And trust has been rebuilt in the way that we have shown our own relationships amongst each other in the community. And so that, for me, was a point of, wow, this really matters. This is what's going to last. And so I've been very passionate, (laughs) Megan can tell you, over the years, we've been in many different programs together, and to train our staff on the values. So new staff start, and as leadership, as a country director, Even when I go visit our programs now as a CEO, the thing I do is say, hey, can you tell me what you like about the values? Mm-hmm. You know, where have you seen them lived in a beautiful way recently? Mm-hmm. Where do you want to celebrate the beauty of a teammate really showing amazing levels of integrity in their work or deep sense of joy in what they're doing or lasting, deep-rooted hope that is infectious, mm-hmm. that bubbles over mm-hmm. and impacts the team and goes beyond that? And then asking questions like, where is it hard? Mm-hmm. Where do you struggle? Where are the challenges? You know, when you're wanting to have compassion, but you're doing a distribution and the community is angry because they got the wrong message about what the distribution items would be or about who would be eligible. And they've walked for days and they've come for nothing and they're getting aggressive and they, you don't feel warm, fuzzy feelings towards them. What does compassion look like in that moment? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you deal with accountability when you're under pressure and it's hard to keep up with all the paperwork 
and it feels like it's not as important as getting that assistance to people, but we want to be good stewards and be sure that really what we said would be done is really what's going to be done. So getting those discussions going. In our programs, I encourage our leaders to stop at least once a quarter and hold a values discussion group session, have a celebration, talk about all the the positive things that have happened in the project. In humanitarian work, we tend to have a lot of setbacks and obstacles, and it's hard to stay motivated and encouraged and positive and hopeful. And so it's important that we stop, celebrate, give thanks. And at those moments, it's a great moment to say, okay, let's pick a value. Let's share the definition we have as an organization together, grapple with it, talk about it, celebrate it, lament where we're struggling with it, (laughs) and spur each other on in it. And that gets it into the hearts of people. What we don't want is that the words on a piece of paper that sit on a shelf somewhere and don't really permeate the organization. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yes. Being clear about them find ways to reinforce, realize that they're going to be difficult and mm-hmm. having conversations along the way. That's a really great way you shared how that can, I think, can be applied in so many different organizations and, and settings. Mm-hmm. I don't have a good segue here, Megan, but this just came to mind when Anne was talking about being on the train. What was the moment you left? Uh, you live in Michigan. You're in, on a college campus here at Wheaton. What was the moment when you really knew, oh, I'm in, in a war zone? Is there a story, a moment where, you know, sometimes like, oh, I kind of know, but like now I really know. I mean, this was also not my first first Mm -hmm. time doing this. So I've worked with Medair for eight and a half years now in many different countries and contexts. And I think I've adjusted mentally to kind of what to expect with a war zone. I think that when I first started this work in South Sudan, when I flew in, I had mentally prepared for like firefights in the street or something, which uh, it kind of carries on. There's a normality. And so I was pretty prepared, I guess, going into Ukraine to kind of have that mentality that there are aspects that look normal, but there's this underlying tension that's there. And especially in Ukraine, that, as I mentioned, that that security piece, in other contexts, if you are far away from the front line, there is an element of safety to that. And in Ukraine, that's not the case because of the missiles and drones and those types of attacks that continue. And so I think in Ukraine, I think the point that really struck me is is the first first air raid that you experience. And you think, oh, this is different. Mm-hmm. And you can't see the threat, but it's there. Right. And that aspect of taking cover. And then when you hear the first impact, when you actually can hear the explosions going on outside, mm-hmm. I think that is another level of hitting home, that there is danger close by. Where did you go when you heard the air raid? What was your protocol? Like, where did you go when you hear the sirens? Yeah, we headed underground to basements, and we became very, very good at knowing where all the closest basements were to wherever we were going, and actively shared that information as far as the best coffee shops that are underground, which Mm -hmm. there are, but also making spaces within our living arrangements, sometimes very, very cramped spaces, but trying to make those as comfortable as possible because we often spent nights in basements in the bottom of stairwells, if that was the only basement available, Mm -hmm. to keep each other safe. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard piece to consider and to be consistent about, Mm -hmm. but it's part of taking care of our teams and demonstrating that they are valued and that, yeah, that we live out. If we say that this is what we need to do to keep each other safe, then we need to follow through with that and live that out day to day, even when it's uncomfortable, which many times it was. (laughs) Jamie and I were 
in Ukraine in September. We were in the West. We were far from the front line, but about 200 people at the National University there. And we were teaching and we were doing like a role play at a couple of Ukrainian students up on with us and people from the university and NGOs and missionaries and church leaders and community leaders were there, but we're teaching and suddenly we like our phones went off and everybody's phones, like 200 phones went off at the same time. We didn't know what it was, but there was like the tension in the room was there and it was just a test air raid siren, like to get it going. But people had come, you know, people were refugees there that left behind. And so that was without actually even being in an air raid, but sort of seeing what people's kind of response to that, I, you know, was amazing. And then sort of them debriefing from it and thinking about it and thinking about trauma and how do they step through it. And, you know, it's so many people are having to do that day in and day out who are living there and then who are a team trying to respond there, you know, is an important part of what you do as an organization is taking care of people who are going through it and taking care of people who are there to help others through it along the way. And what has kept us as demanding and meaningful work? We were talking about that earlier. You mentioned the word joy a little while ago. And so those are all reasons to do this kind of work. There are also reasons to not do this kind of work. The demands can make physically, emotionally, spiritually on you. Are there, it's kind of thinking of stories, but like, are there, what are some moments that come to mind of why are you still doing this work after 20 years? Like, what have you seen? Is there a, you mentioned some of those leaving points, but you know, can you think of some people who are helped through your work that you think, oh, that's why I'm doing this, or that's why I'm going to keep doing this? Any mm. stories like that come to mind? We're an emergency response NGO, mm -hmm. and so we're in the business of life-saving activities. Mm -hmm. And being at the pointy end of that spear in Ganyal in, in South Sudan many years ago in a stabilization center holding a, a child in my arms who had been completely emaciated two weeks before and through the specialized nutrition treatment and the care of the team had become a reasonably chubby and definitely cheerful child again. Mm -hmm. And realizing the impact on that individual's life for their whole lives, that they'd been able to be a turnaround from being at the brink of death to having a chance of being a child and, and, and growing into being an adult again. Mm -hmm. That was one moment for me of, wow, mm -hmm. this really matters. This is yeah. what the real life-saving pointy end of the spear looks like. Yeah. Another moment was in a cholera treatment center. A guy had collapsed. Where a doctor was, was there was in Juba mm -hmm. in 2014. There was a severe outbreak. We'd set up a big cholera treatment center in Juba Teaching Hospital, to, along with the Ministry of Health. And we rallied together as, as a team, along with some of the nurses there, and the doctor on our team had been showing me around. So we, we picked him up, got him on a stretcher, got IV fluids into him, and he had no pulse. We thought he was dead. And this is the closest I've come to thinking I've, I've witnessed the resurrection, because <laughs> after multiple bags of IV fluids, he opened his eyes and sat up and... Uh, oh. Survived. I actually ended up getting cholera myself a few weeks later and had that very stark visual in my mind of this can go horribly wrong. Right. Drink like your life depends on it. Get all the ORS in you that you can, the oral rehydration mm -hmm. salts. And you may need to, you know, you have to isolate patients. You don't want it to spread. You may have to be willing to go and lay in that same place. And you are just as vulnerable as the next person. This can happen to any of us. None of us are exempt from experiencing trauma, from having our lives ripped apart by natural disasters or even by conflict. So it's actually a privilege, I think, to join God in his heart for the most vulnerable, to be 
saying, here we are, we're available to you. We know that we are not the savior. We want to make ourselves available to the one who saves. And in doing that, you know, part of your question was, why are you still doing it? Mm -hmm. How are you still doing it after so many years of being, especially in difficult conflict settings? Mm -hmm. I think a big part of the reason is realizing this is not actually my burden to carry. It's a privilege to be part of it for a time. Mm -hmm. And then there are times when one steps out and recovers and debriefs and processes. And that is important so that you're able to say again, here I am, I'm available, use me. I want to join those others. And I think the other thing is, being with others who are highly motivated, committed, passionate about what they're doing, and having this shared desire to really invest in the quality of our relationships. In Medair, we really value the importance of team. We don't just want to, to get on and get that clinic set up or get that nutrition program going, but we actually believe that the value of the spaces between us is what's going to have a ripple effect out mm -hmm. to the communities that we enter into. And that is going to bring that lasting change, that that's going to bring restoration. It's going to be seeds of reconciliation, especially where we come with international and multi-ethnic teams into contexts where those ethnicities may be at war with each other. And so we have people helping people that their own people are at war with, that their families consider their enemy. Right. And that's such a powerful way to bring change in a society and to bridge those divides and bring healing. Right and privileged to be part of those small deposits of restoration in a world where we know things aren't right mm -hmm. and we long for that bigger restoration to come. Yeah, for sure. Well said. Well said. And mentioned coming off the field and Megan, you just came off. What's what's hard and what feels good about coming out? It was just two weeks, I think you said. Right? Yeah, yeah, about two so weeks. Two weeks yeah. after a really intense year in a war zone in Ukraine and Poland. But what's it like coming off of an assignment like that? It definitely felt good in the first few days of getting time with family, sleep. For the, I don't know, four to six weeks before I finished, we had air raids every single night. Oh. So I hadn't had a full night of sleep. And when I say full night of sleep, that's generally a short night anyway, mm -hmm. from when the work day ends to when it starts again. But then having it disrupted, getting up in the and at three in the morning uh, to head down to the basement for an hour is frustrating. So getting back and getting rest has been really important and wonderful. You really learn to value a night's sleep. Mm -hmm. But I think also, yeah, taking time to to process and that is a hard, a hard piece. And it, it takes time to learn how to do that well. I've been doing this for a while. And the first few times, you know, I would, the emotions and memories hit a few weeks in. And that is challenging. And sometimes it hits right away. And sometimes it takes some time. For you, what is processing? What does processing look like? What does it mean uh, after this? Yeah, I think that I will say this time I felt, you know, Two weeks in, I thought, oh, I am doing really great. And then just in the past, I'll, honestly, just in the past few days, like waves of emotion. And really, that it's a process of grief. It's a process of... Are those the main emotions? Is it grief or what emotions are you feeling when you say waves of emotion? Waves of emotion, I think. So, I mean, kind of the experience of grief, that there's anger, there's sadness, there's denial. I think denial was probably what I was experiencing for the first few weeks of kind of like... Yeah, I'm out now, but I could go back or it's not fully over somehow or yeah, not that hadn't fully sunk in. And yeah, so then there's frustration or anger or just feeling really sad. 
And there are great memories that make me smile. Thinking of our team there, thinking of successes. There's a lot of processing what went well, what didn't go well, and trying to understand healthy processing of that. You know, what are pieces where I want to grow and I want to do better and learn from that? And what are pieces that we can just celebrate? And what are pieces that the circumstances that I was in made things really hard? And not that sometimes it is me. I have plenty of things I still need to be learning, but not taking everything on myself to say, I didn't spend enough time with, some, you know, training up new staff. And there are times where I said, wait a second, I had a hundred new staff. And yes, I didn't get enough time with each one or with certain ones. So how do I process this in a healthy way to understand the reality of that and how I can improve but put it in its right place. And that takes time. And then for you, is that writing, walking, thinking about it, interpreting the experiences? Yeah, how does that happen? Lots and lots of prayer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think something that I've really learned is just thinking through Elijah's experience of processing. And biblically, his process of struggling with some burnout and, yeah, his experience of big, amazing things that God was doing, but a lot of really hardship and trauma. And what we see biblically and how he dealt with that was going into a wilderness, stepping away from everything that was going on. And he cries out to God and God effectively says, sleep, which I am doing. And then he wakes up and he cries out to God again and God says, eat. And he goes through several rounds of sleeping and eating, which is is an important piece of processing, actually, um, is taking care of our physical self. And then God basically says, come and walk with me and just take time and they journey together. For me, that's a lot of physical activity. That's going for long walks. That's swimming laps and just spending time with God. And we have lots of discussions and there are certain topics that come up and I really feel God saying, we'll get to that, but let's just journey together. And the amazing thing in scripture that we see is that when he comes through this process, he meets with God and he has this encounter and this experience. And so it's worth pushing through and processing and journeying with God as we consider our successes and our failures. And what do we do with that? Thanks, Megan. Thanks, and thanks for sharing. Is it still pretty fresh. I think it's so important to do this in my own different experiences. Like if you're going to, like you said, it helps if you're going to do better next time, it's important. But also if you're not going to be either numb or paralyzed or, okay, you know, totally broken down, this part of coming back, I think is really essential. And so I think that's a good reminder for People, whether they're deploying, whether it's a war zone, whether they're doing other kind of work to do some of the things, you know, each person is individual, but to do some of these things is part of what helps us stay alive to God and our relationship with God and stay alive to our friends and to our family, because otherwise uh, it doesn't go away, but it will come out or or become calluses or something else in other ways. So I'm grateful to hear that you're doing all of that. Just one more question. I'd love to keep talking for hours, but I think we'll find another time to do this. But just wanted to ask a question that drives this podcast to each of you, you and first, and then to Megan of in these careers where you've helped and stepped into hard places to help people, what have been keys for you to keep on getting better? So 
So one would be processing well as you come off of an assignment and then uh, to be able to go back well and do better in serving people in the next. I think a second one we've talked about are the importance of values being clear and being reinforced. Anything else, either on a personal level or organizational level, what you've learned of how to keep improving at serving other people who are suffering and vulnerable? One is really listening, not thinking we know it all, not just coming with cookie cutter solutions, mm-hmm. thinking that we've figured out the most cost effective way to do it. And so we're just going to do that on a blanket scale, but still really listening and harnessing the strengths of communities that we're in, partnering with others, mm-hmm. not thinking we can be an island unto ourselves and, and thrive in that way, but really finding strength and in, in working with others and gaining from their learnings and their unique understanding and their strengths and seeing that together we can do more. And I think being very intentional about my own hope barometer, so Mm. sensing what is my source of hope? Is it staying fresh? And for me, my hope comes from trusting in the Lord. That gives an immense amount of joy and peace. And I know that He helps us in that, so we don't have to do it in our own strength. Without hope, you know, people say you can live for however many seconds without breathing and or minutes, I guess, and for days without food, probably for, for hours without water. Can't get all the timings right, but you really can't live without hope. You also can't really do good for others when you are convinced that their situations are doomed. And I was in Turkey a couple of weeks ago with the earthquake response there, and every single conversation I had with Syrian NGO CEOs, with UN officials, with other NGOs, with with our own staff. Every conversation got to a point where people were talking about how hopeless they felt. And I realized more than ever, I need to be solidly grounded and knowing why I have hope and in order to be able to be a presence that brings hope. What you draw on, which would of course agree with hope in God and trust in God, what gives you hope in the work as well, sort of in what you're seeing and what you're doing? What's hopeful right now, either mm. new developments or approaches or a, a certain place that seemed hopeless but broke through and people's lives are better? Like what? Where do you find hope, that kind of hope mm. recently? In these conversations in Turkey, I was very conscious that I didn't necessarily share my beliefs and views with those that I was talking to. And I was trying to think, how can I encourage them to have hope? And what struck me was how beautiful it is when people don't turn their head away from the vulnerability of others and the crisis and the suffering. And in Turkey, it is super evident, you know, all these piles of rubble and buildings teetering on an edge needing to come down and people in tented camps in the extreme heat and a couple of months ago in the extreme cold. And the fact that our staff every day make the choice to go and look into these difficult situations and listen to people's stories and really seek to understand the pain that they're experiencing, that is a beautiful thing. There's beauty in that. And that inspires me, the fact that they they have the courage to do that. And my sharing the beauty that I see with them hopefully inspires them back again. And as we tell stories about it in the organization, hopefully that inspires others. And that hope then has, has knock-on effects. It becomes infectious. And I think that point of beauty the beauty of our care for each other. And I saw this as well recently in Sudan with extremely significant descent into absolute chaos and horrendous fighting across the capital city and then across the whole country. 
the way people reached out to help each other. Years ago, when I was in Darfur, came into a community, was dropped off by a helicopter, and the community had had 80% of the houses burnt and people had fled and it was a very dire situation. And I came upon these three donkeys leaning on each other. They're each on each other's necks in a triangle. And I thought, wow, even the animals know that they need each other. Mm. And the stories that were coming out of Khartoum in those first days of the intense fighting was of neighbors reaching out to neighbors, people helping each other get across checkpoints and front lines, people giving each other their extra water, people helping each other get their phones charged, that beauty of people helping each other. Yeah, that's great. Uh, The beauty of collaboration is, yeah, the beauty that often we see in these really hard places of people caring for each other and taking risks for each other and then the the necessity of hope. Um, Yeah. I think your question was a bit broader. So new developments in the sector, I think developments that come out of genuine care. So even research projects, there's a lot of good work being done in the humanitarian world around that. But I think it's what's driving it is when people actually want to find better solutions, want to find more cost-effective ways so that more people can get assistance, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Megan, thoughts on broad as you want to, but, you know, thinking about doing it better. What have you learned about that, you know, uh, recently, I think are keys to how do we keep on improving it, serving other people? Yeah. I mean, I think my thoughts go back to Anne's uh, sharing about values and partially because I've been thinking about how I came to Medair and I came to Medair because of their values. Oddly enough, I wasn't sure how to get into the humanitarian sector. And I met someone who, who had worked in humanitarian work, had not worked for Medair, was, would not say that they were a person of faith. They were quite jaded and frustrated with the system, and, but it was a humanitarian. And for me, that was a point of information that I needed. And so I asked him, after hearing about some of his experiences, were there any organizations he could recommend? He was he was quite frustrated with many. And he thought for a minute and he said, there's only one. There's this organization called Medair. And he said that they really care about people and they live that out in their work and that they haven't given up on this whole messy situation. And they don't just care Like they want to fix people, but they want to hear from those communities and listen to them as they're putting together a response. He said, they do what they say they're going to do. And they tell you when they mess up. He's like, nobody else is doing that. Or he hadn't seen that. And he says, they're Christians, but they're the nice kind, (laughs) which I, I thought was an interesting way to put it. And he continued to talk about what he had witnessed from seeing the programs and the staff working for Medair. And after I had that meeting with him, I went home and I looked at Medair and I looked at their values. And he didn't know the values, but he had actually named each of them by describing the people in the programs of Medair. And that really caught my attention. And that was something that I thought, that's the kind of organization that I want to be a part of. And I've seen that lived out in one of my team members in South Sudan, Michael. Every time he goes into a community to start a response, to do an assessment, his first stop is meeting with community leaders. And he sits down and shares with them, you know, we're from this organization called Medair, and this is what we do, and this is who we are. And he shares the values and lays them out and explains what they mean. And when I first saw him do that, I was like, we've got a lot to do, and I'm not sure if this is critical. And seeing him take the time 
that this wasn't just something that we had workshops on internally. He thought it was absolutely essential to share. This is who we are and this is how we work. And then I saw it play out in the whole response. And as we ran into challenges, as there were questions about, are we gathering the right information? Are we hearing from the communities? And he would go back and say, these are the values and this, we need to take this time to hear from the community. As there were questions about individuals in authority who wanted some kickbacks or wanted some bribes, uh, bribes or additional things to come their way, he could say, you know, you remember our core values. And for this reason, we can't give that. And that impacted every step of the response to the point that the community leaders knew what our core values were and why those were important. And so I think that that has really encouraged me and also challenged me to recognize how intentional we have to be at every point of our programming to come back to those values and live those out and talk about those. And then also the humbling reminder that people who we don't realize are watching are, and they notice. And yeah, so that's something that continues to be on my mind of living that out and doing that well. And something that we try to be, you know, intentional about in Ukraine and in Poland as we built a whole new program with a whole new team and yeah, met with our teams. And when you have so many things that you need to spend time talking about, we need to spend time on values mm. and make sure that every member of our staff understands what they are and what they mean and how that impacts our day-to-day -day work. So that's definitely something that's been on my mind. Anne and Megan, thanks for this conversation. But more importantly, thank you for the work that you're doing to serve people in really hard places where most of us can't get to but you and your teams, get to show God's love to people, people who deserve the very best care, and you're working hard to, to give it. And so thank you for the work that you do in many different ways. And also thanks for this conversation. I think these are particularly intensified situations you step into in conflict, but I think that it applies to just so many situations people are in where they're loving their neighbors, where it's demanding beyond what you can meet, even if it's just another neighbor, a neighbor in the suburbs or someone who has addiction issues or lost a job. And even that can be overwhelming. And I think the importance of values and dignity and humility and listening and if you're on a team, caring about the team and how, how we're reinforcing that and really believing it and being faithful are, are just things that are so important in your work. And I think they're so important in our work in many different ways as we seek to love our neighbors and to keep learning how to do good better. So, Anna Megan, thank mm -hmm. you for the conversation and thank you for the work you do. Mm, thank you. Thank you for having us. closing, thank you for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. Be sure to check out our show notes for helpful links and resources. And as always, feel free to email us with your questions or comments at hdi at wheaton.edu. We look forward to being with you again soon as we continue together on this journey of learning to do good better. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, 
intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.